Welcome to the Podium Podcast, where we bring together leaders from the worlds of sports, media and philanthropy to discuss the people and stories that change the world. At Podium Pictures, we make impact. We encourage you to visit PodiumPictures.com to learn more about our mission. Now, here's your host, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Brett Rapkin. Welcome to today's episode of the Podium Podcast. We have a great guest today and a really special conversation that I hope you enjoy as much as I did. Our guest today is Dave Zirin. Dave is the sports editor of The Nation, a columnist for The Progressive, and the host of The Edge of Sports podcast. His many books include A People's History of Sports in the United States, Game Over, and Bad Sports. Dave Zirin has also been a regular guest on MSNBC, CNN, and ESPN. He lives near Washington, D.C., and as he talks about, is forced to go to Orioles games. Today, he's coming on to talk about his new book, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. As he wants you to know, it's not about Colin Kaepernick. It's about the effect that Colin had on sports and the world at large. Hope you enjoy Dave Zirin. I want to welcome Dave Zirin to the Podium Podcast. Dave, how's it going? Where are you coming from today? Hey, uh, Dave here, coming to you from right outside of Washington D.C. on the Maryland side of things. Well, thanks. You know, first of all, for for all the work, you know, the body of work that that you've done in in this space, and and certainly with the Kaepernick effect, which we're going to talk to talk about at length today. Where do you where do you kind of see yourself in this world of of journalism, or, or how do you see you know your your place in in this universe. Well, I mean, it's it's not a, a huge space by any stretch of the imagination, but it's the space I've always wanted to be in from the time I was a little kid, and that's that space where sports and politics. That's what I from the start of me doing journalism. It's what I wanted to write about. It was my goal. It was my dream. When I worked at small newspapers, I would do odd jobs in return for having just a little bit of space in the paper to write about sports and politics issues, and that was. 20 years ago. So I'm, you know, that that's the space I'm in. And I am incredibly excited about some of the developments over the last five years or so on this question of sports and politics, because there's so much more to write about now than there was when I got started. So, you know, I, I feel, I feel comfortable in my space. You know, you talk in the book about, about some of these athletes uh, who have also become advocates. Is advocate, do you like the word advocates? Yeah, I think the, the phrase that I think has become overused is athlete activist. That's the one where I'm always sometimes a little bit like, okay, that's, I might as well have one of those brand symbols. At. But, you know, advocate is good. I mean, anything that can describe somebody using the, the brought to you by Nike multi-billion dollar platform that is sports for other issues. I mean, you can use any label you like. You know, in terms of the media landscape, and I mean, it's probably, you know, comparing apples to oranges to compare a Muhammad Ali or a Jim Brown to you know, a LeBron James or, or a Colin Kaepernick. I just think about social media and how frictionless and immediate it is. Whereas, you know, I imagine, you know, let's just talk about Ali for a second. Like anything that he said kind of had to be go through a filter, right? Whether it was Howard Cosell or it was the New York Times, 
How do you feel like that's changed and, and is it for the better? Well, it's been, I think, arguably one of the two dramatic changes over the last 10 years. That's completely taken the question of sports and politics and turned it on its head. One is social media and the other is the Black Lives Matter movement. Movements always change sports and they make athletes more confident to speak out. Now, Ali had that second part, you know, movements, which gave him a sense of insight and confidence. And, you know, he then in turn, after being shaped by movements, both against racism and against the war in Vietnam, turned around and then shaped those movements himself. Now, social media, Ali did not have, although I think he would have probably been brilliant if given half the chance. Sometimes he would speak in tweets and sometimes had to tweet longer. But I think the the question of social media has been decisive for these athletes because they feel like they can speak without filter. There's decades of mistrust that exists between what is often an older and whiter sports translating what athletes say to uh, a largely white audience that they sometimes perceive as being more conservative than they are. And athletes being able to speak directly has had a huge difference. I mean, I think that the a real game changer was after George Zimmerman murdered Trayvon Martin, that photograph of the Miami Heat, where they were all had their hoodies on with, you know, LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, but all the players wore hoodies. And that was kind of the first viral sports politics photograph that we've seen of this era. And ever since then, it's a place where athletes have turned to speak out, get their views out and have the kind of space that oftentimes the mainstream media does not pro provide. You know, certainly with athletes or anybody else, generating discussion, conversation has tremendous value in itself just to bring things to the forefront. Where do you feel like the rubber meets the road in terms of these athletes being able to create like a true impact, like something that's actually tangible as opposed to just a lot of conversation? Yeah, I mean, th that's the question also with social media. I mean, it giveth and it taketh away. I mean, the good thing is about, it is what we said, is that it allows you to speak directly to your audience. The tough thing is that if everybody's speaking, how can you distinguish what actually needs to be heard from what doesn't? And that's part of the art of politics, which I think a lot of players have gotten a crash course in over these last several years. You have to say something that connects and that matters to an audience. And so it matters what that audience is going through at a particular moment. And that puts a pressure on players to be less, which has been a function of there being more money in sports over the last several decades, is that separation of the athlete from the community. And I think what athletes are now challenged with and what they're trying to do is be connected uh, to a community that they're also trying to represent politically because they understand that they have a voice and a platform that certainly most people who grew up as in poverty, as many athletes do, just simply don't have that microphone or don't have that platform that, and they wanna be able to use that in a way that actually helps and gives back. So it's a complicated question. In a lot of ways, it's the question that's always existed for people who wanna build movements, which is like, how do you actually connect with, with, the, with the needs and concerns of people as a whole? And you know they're now confronted with that times of because of social media. And, but the, the risk is not like with Ali, certainly, where if they get it wrong, you know, they can find themselves on the outside of their sport looking in, although that certainly has happened to Colin Kaepernick. But the gift is is more rooted in irrelevance. Like you're just someone who talks and not someone who makes change. Before we get into Colin, I want to talk to you about the mental health and sports 
sure. aspect and, and, and it's all, you know, so interrelated and it's a, it's a theme that comes up in your, in your, your great book here. What are your thoughts on, you know, whether it's Naomi Osaka and what she's going through or, or Simone Biles and, and others, but her most notably at the, the most recent Olympics, what do you think is going on with these athletes that is creating this, this situation around mental health? Oh, definitely a reflection of broader society trying to have these discussions. I mean, my daughter's 17 and her and her friends are as comfortable talking about depression, OCD and various forms of medication as they are talking about music. I mean, it's all it's just a part of their lexicon of how they talk about the world in which they live, which is understandable because the world we live in is profoundly fucked up. And if you're a teenager and you're waking up every day thinking about climate change and whether you're thinking about racism, sexism, homophobia, COVID, obviously, the level of psychological pressure is very intense. And so there's, there's, a, there's a literacy in mental health today that didn't exist previously. And there is a, 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 a lexicon for them to actually discuss and understand why they feel the way they feel that maybe other athletes didn't have. Like it was incredibly hard psychologically on Carrie Strug to go through what she went through in terms of that vault at, at the Olympics on a bum leg. And, you know, she retired thereafter. She's been out of the public eye. It hasn't been some kind of great positive brand experience for her. They didn't have that language back then for her to maybe explain why she didn't want to do that vault. Similarly, in tennis, for 40 years, there have been players who have left tennis because of mental health issue. You know, thinking about people from Bjorn Borg, who retired at 26, McEnroe, who retired at 27, all, all the women players who retired before their 20th birthday, people like Tracy Auth, for example, or Carlene Bassett, or Jennifer Capriati before she made her comeback, Mary Pierce. In all these cases, there are psychological issues at the fore. And he, I think it's incredibly empowering to see athletes now be able to say, to have to be able to identify a problem in their lives and in their relationship with the broader audience sports world and say, we have a serious problem here. And in a lot of ways, all those, uh, I don't know if you heard the, um, the tennis player over the weekend say, oh great, now that I lost, I'm gonna get millions of th death threats over Instagram, Rogers, I believe her name is. And in and, and this kind of pressure, direct pressure that comes from not only being on social media, but being raised by social media in many cases, for these young teenage athletes is causing real duress. And so that their ability to speak about it, I mean, it's not just about helping them, but it could eventually save competitive sports because if they're not being open about this, about the level of pressure in the 21st century, the weight of gold, if you will, as I see behind you, you know, that that question is, is very real. And their ability to be professional athletes means reckoning with their own psychology. And I think one of the big differences is that sports psychology has been very accepted for a long time because sports psychology is linked to performance. But what, what about a psychology that's linked to mental health? I think that's where Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, that's where they're trying to take us. Yeah, you, you, which you, you mentioned about the sports performance piece of it. The way I talk about it is that the, the spectrum isn't at the, at, at the high end, you're gonna hit the home run on the 3-2 on the pitch. And on the low end, you're going to strike out. It's like, that's the high end, but the low end is you don't want to be alive anymore. Yeah. You don't want to take place in your sport. And like, it's a, it's a much broader spectrum than just not performing. Uh, exactly. And I think that's the way the conversation's going. And tennis, let's really talk need to reckon with the fact that people who play their sport don't seem to, there was just an article in the New York Times about it. 
And it, it really, as someone who's been a tennis fan my entire life, it really is stunning, like how in other sports, players basically have to be carted off before they ever retire. I mean, Michael Jordan coming back with the Wizards or Tom Brady playing until he's 90 years old. I mean, it's very rare that you see an athlete voluntarily say, yeah, this is not for me and walk away, except for tennis, where this has been happening for 40 years. I mean, they might want to look into that if they want to have a, a sport that's viable going forward. Well, it just makes you ask what's, you know, what's what's special about a, a Federer or an Adal who are able to, or Serena, uh, who keep showing up and doing it year after year. Are they are they gluttons for punishment? Well, even Nadal is start is starting to say, "Well, wait a minute." And Federer too, although Federer he you know he links it to the physical of this idea of saying, "All right, I'm going to play in some of these big select tournaments because of my own legacy, but I'm not going to do the grind anymore." And they've earned that right, but they're, they're the version. And I say this with respect; they're the version of tennis's one percenters. You know, the three of the people you named Serena too. I mean, they're able to basically pick and choose their schedule, which which a lot of these folks uh, do not have the ability to do. There's just too much competition. Absolutely. Let's talk about your book, The Kaepernick Effect. It's coming out September 14th, I believe. Yeah. Um, what made you decide to write this one? Ooh, well, it started with a pitch that was so bad, it took me a long time to find a publisher who would be willing to do it. I, here, here I was at the start of the pandemic with really nothing to do. And I kept thinking about the stories of people who took a knee. And there had been a couple of articles about them at the high school level was what my head was around. And I kept thinking about how, you know, these are folks who are getting memory hold. Like every time I hear people talk about Colin Kaepernick and his legacy, it's always rooted on whether or not he's going ever going to get another opportunity to play quarterback or it's rooted in how did this affect other professional athletes? Never anything about the effect that it might have had on small communities across the country places where I'd read these, you know, articles that were, you know, the equivalent of AP articles, like little write-ups about a player who would get, you know, kicked off their team or a controversy in a small town or an entire youth league that shut down because players kneeled. And I just like, you know, we got to preserve this history. You know, I, I love uh, Howard Zinn. I, I, I was like, this is what people's history should be all about. You know, preserving the kinds of histories that otherwise would either not get told or would just be, get straight up forgotten. And I didn't want that to happen. So that was my pitch to book publishers. And a lot of them were like, eh, you know, are people really going to read about, want to read about a bunch of high school students who took a knee during the anthem? And the new press said, all right, that sounds interesting. Let's do it. And, you know, they were the only people who didn't say to me, well, well, Kaepernick, can you get an interview with him for the book? And with all of them, I said, you know, I, I, I do know Colin, I, I, I message with him, but I don't in any way, shape or form have any guarantee that he would do anything for the book. And I couldn't guarantee that. And that just caused a lot of publishers to say, yeah, well, this isn't for us. Then you have the, and so I'm doing these interviews and the new press is down to do the book. I'm doing all these interviews at the start of the pandemic. And then the police murder of George Floyd happens and you have the largest protests in the history of the United States take place during the summer of 2020. And that's when the book kind of changed because I went back and I started interviewing a bunch of the people I'd already spoken to. I had a new line of questions for people who I hadn't spoken with yet. And I, I start to see that, you know, the road to, there are many roads that took us to 2020 to the largest protests in the history of the United States. But one of those roads was constructed by the actions of Colin Kaepernick. The first bricks in that road were laid. 
because what he did was he gave a language to all these young people who wanted to, who were disgusted with police brutality and wanted to bring those discussions into their communities. But maybe there wasn't a movement in their town or a demonstration or a march. They had no way to do it. They just were filled with frustration. And Colin hands over something they can do. It's like, okay, you play a sport, the anthem plays, you take a knee. You go to a sporting event, the anthem plays, you take a knee. You're protesting the gap between what this country promises and your lived experiences. And that, to me, gave confidence to all these young people and started sometimes extremely polarizing conversations in all kinds of communities. And when I went back and spoke to the people who I'd interviewed early on in the process, they were all organizing for these protests. And they were all people who the first political thing they'd ever really done was take a knee during the anthem. So that's a very, very long answer, not exactly an elevator answer, but 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 that's the, really how the book came about. It's about an untold path towards a mass movement. Now, I thought it was fascinating, Dave, to read about in the introduction, the way that Colin and Taken and Knee came to be. Can you talk a little bit about that backstory with, with Weish at the NFL Network? Oh, kind of, It's such a good story. I just interviewed Steve Weish on my podcast too, and we, we just got into it again. And he was such a good storyteller. Steve Weish with the NFL Network, terrific, terrific reporter, has been at the Washington Post, all kinds of jobs over the years. And uh, Steve Weish saw something that his colleagues did not see and did not get the importance of. And it was an August preseason game. Colin Kaepernick was not even the starting quarterback of this game. He's coming back from injuries. And he decides to sit on the bench during the national anthem and behind his teammates. So it was something nobody really saw or noticed. And frankly, not something altogether at that time unusual in the NFL for a player to sort of quietly sit or for a player to be in the locker room during the anthem, because, you know, this was large, this was a, a forced thing that players were told to do after 9-11, come out for the anthem. And uh, as part of a, a financial partnership between the military and the National Football League. And so it's something that players had, some players had sort of thumbed their nose at in the past. But here's Colin sitting on the bench. But what Steve Weish knew was that Colin Kaepernick's social media recently had put up some interesting articles about the police murders that had taken place that summer that were very high profile because they were caught on camera, those of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. So Steve Weish says, wait a minute, there's a story here. So he goes down there and he just goes up to Colin and he says, hey, I noticed you were sitting. Can you talk about that? And Colin just goes off about the police, about police brutality. He says, uh, there are people dead in the streets. There are bodies in the streets and police are getting away with murder. They're getting paid vacations and, you know, this has to stop. And all of a sudden we had a story and we had a story in a way that we wouldn't have had if it had been a different sport or a different athlete. The fact that it was the NFL, which is the closest thing to a monoculture we have in this country. The fact that it was a quarterback, the most without question, high profile position on, on a football team. The fact that it was a black quarterback one who had earned derision in years past for his tattoos and for kissing his biceps when he made it into the end zone. I mean, it all, it all came together in this perfect storm. And then Colin Kaepernick, in response to that perfect storm, did not duck away from it, certainly did not apologize, but he took on an amazing thing, a four-month protest, basically, where every single Sunday he got visible, he took a knee, 
and he took whatever derision was thrown his way, week in, week out. And it, it really was something that occurred to me about the enormity of that when I, I spoke to John Carlo, who you could see him behind me right there. That's John Carlos on a poster behind me. Uh, I did a book with John Carlos. We, he was one of the 1968 Olympians who raised his fist. And John Carlos said to me, you know, I did that once and it was one of the most intense experiences of my life. And I've been, you know, paying for it and talking about it ever since. He did it for, you know, 17 straight weeks. And that was something that for me was like, wow, yeah, I never thought about it like that. Yeah, you talk about, because, you know, there's people can debate all day long whether Colin Kaepernick should be playing in the NFL today or three years ago or at any time since he lost his job. But I was kind of blown away seeing some of the actual statistics that you that you put in the book about, you know, what Colin, the kind of numbers that Colin were putting up. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that just in, in the context of, you know, your opinion, how ridiculous it, it was or is that he doesn't have a job in the NFL? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that because th there's certain conclusions we can draw from this. So Colin Kaepernick's last year, he's playing for a, just a god-awful 49ers team. They're terrible from top to bottom. And his receivers actually lead the NFL in drops that year. And even with that, and they had no running game to speak of. And even with that, he throws 16 touchdowns, four interceptions, and leads all quarterbacks in yards per carry. And obviously was set up to at least get a tryout somewhere the next season, but nothing came through. No NFL team came through. There's no doubt in my mind he was colluded against. There's no doubt in my mind he's been turned into a pariah. So then we have to ask ourselves, why? Why is this? Especially because I believe that this is a going to be a, a, a bruise on the history of the NFL that they colluded against Colin Kaepernick for decades to come. Like the same way we speak about with, about Major League Baseball, that they, that they are under an eternal cloud of shame for the color line that kept black players out until 1947. That's how people are going to be talking about Colin Kaepernick and for decades to come. He was colluded against. And all these NFL teams that say winning is the most important thing, well, clearly it wasn't. Because here was a quarterback who could help many a team throughout the league at least half the teams he could have started for, or at least tried out to start for. And instead they said, no, thank you. Your services are not welcome here. And it's just, it's a damning indictment of the so-called winning culture stuff, propaganda that comes out of the, NF the NFL. The other thing that conclusion we can draw from it is that the National Football League has decided that Colin Kaepernick has more value as a ghost story than he does as part of a winning team. Like they want him to be a ghost story to haunt future generations of players to say, you better get in line or else. And it's really the oldest trick in the book. It's a carrot and stick uh, dynamic we've seen play out. I mean, here's the National Football League. They have very, very few black coaches and black executives. There are no black owners. And at the same time, they also say, hey, Black Lives Matter. Look, we're putting up these slogans on the field. Roger Goodell will even go so far, the commissioner will even go so far as to say we should have listened to Colin Kaepernick more in 2016. And yet you see the end result, the stick in the carrot and stick, uh, which is lack of employment opportunity and also Colin Kaepernick not having a job. It's something they want to lord over future generations of players, particularly black players, to say, know your role, shut your mouth, shut up and the equivalent of shut up and dribble. So, so I think, though, what's interesting is that when I talk to young players, Kaepernick is less a ghost story than he is a kind of animating spirit like somebody that they draw influence and inspiration from. And I think that's something that's going to be true as the years go on as well.
you allude to in the book, I mean, how few athletes there are who have, let's call it the leverage. I'm not sure that's the word you use, but the leverage to basically say whatever they want to say and, and do what they want to do within reason and, and be able to keep their jobs. How, how few athletes do you think there are, let's just say in the, the four major sports who actually have that kind of leverage? And how do we, how do we, how do we create a scenario where more athletes, you know, black or otherwise feel comfortable voicing their opinions without fear of losing their jobs? Well, there's certainly, I think it's a league issue. There's certainly the most leverage coming out of the end. That's pretty obvious. One reason for that is the guaranteed contracts. And one reason for that is LeBron James. I mean, I think he, even though, you know, LeBron James is not you know, as, as politically thoughtful or radical by any stretch than what, as what Colin Kaepernick was saying or trying to do, LeBron's been a culture changer. Like he has bent the NBA to being a place that is more accepting towards players speaking their mind. And when you have the best player enacting that posture, it creates almost like a force field for every other player to be able to say something or do something. And that's been you know very important. Like LeBron's very presence has been very important in the world of basketball. And so the number of people in the NBA who I think could do it, and the WNBA as well, definitely, who They've decided to say that, hey, our entire league is based on the idea that we believe that players should have a political voice and we support them in doing so. I mean, that's part of their, I've interviewed franchise owners of the NBA. That's literally part of their marketing strategy. It's like, we want to be known as the league where players can speak out. You get beyond basketball though. And I think there's what you've seen in 2021 is kind of like a reassertion of hierarchy after 2020 where a lot of the people in control of sports, the commissioners, the franchise owners, even in some cases, the fans have come forward to say, okay, 2020 was a weird year. You had COVID, you had the protests. Well, that's over. And we're getting back to you entertaining us. And so you've seen a level of backlash against athletes. We mentioned Naomi Osaka. I mean, remember that her story begins when she says she doesn't want to speak to the media at the French Open and they respond with a letter signed by the directors of all four Grand Slams saying, well, you're not going to play in our tournament. You're not going to play in the Grand Slams if you're not talking to the media. And that was like such an overreaction. It's like killing an ant with a bazooka. And they were willing to do that. I think not, I mean, I mean, honestly, to because she was one of those athletes who was very active around Black Lives Matter. And it was, I thought, their way of saying, okay, you are going to be a product now. You are going to be controlled. And so the number, it, it's always going to be, your question's a great one. And it's always, there's always going to be a fluid answer to this based on sort of the balance of forces in any individual sport. In basketball, that balance of forces still looks like it's in the hands of the players. In other places, I'm not so sure. Yeah. And again, with, you know, you mentioned Osaka and, and just the media part of it. It comes back to what we were talking about earlier about social media. I mean, what does Naomi Osaka need, you know, the French, you know, <laughs> channel for, you know, or, or the, the, the Austrian, you know, ORF to, to broadcast her interview in the way they want to broadcast it, in the way they want to edit it, where she can go on her social and immediately go out to the people who care most about her and beyond when it gets retweeted, it gets amplified and say exactly what she wants to say. You know, there's there's a shifting, there's a shift going on. And I think that maybe the leagues are scared they're losing, at least when it comes to media, their ability to control the narrative. Yeah, they're they're a power. And I'm sure you've seen this as well. The number of athletes who've started their own uh, production companies, 
I mean, and that's another, I think, LeBron legacy that we're going to see is this idea of them saying, you know, we can create our own content and not just about our own lives and our own messages, but about everything that we want to see out there. We have money, we have capital, we have the ability to shape all kinds of things. And when athletes do that, they're taking power away from a couple of pretty powerful entities. So the people who run the tournaments and the media itself. So, you know, they're not going to give up control of that without a fight. And you're going to see all kinds of interesting bedfellows along the way, because I know a lot of really good journalists who think that this is a, an apocalyptic moment for journalism uh, because of the ability of athletes to control their own message. But I also know other journalists who say it's about time because we've been you know, operating without rules for far too long and been disrespectful of athletes and what they're saying for far too long. We've been part of the problem for far too long. So there's some very interesting debates now taking place in journalism schools and among journalists about where this is all headed and what the role of journalism is going to be going forward. Yeah. Bodie Miller, the ski racer, pointed out to me, he talks about how the media tends to create an arc for, in his case, you know, athletes where they build them up and then they look for this moment to knock them down and the comeback. I think as a storyteller myself, I know that we look for those dramatic ups and downs because it's what makes a story riveting to an audience. But I imagine if you're an athlete or a public figure at all, to have outside people doing that with your own story, your own livelihood, you know, has to get pretty old. Exactly. And of course, we know from our own lives that life isn't like that. You know, life is not classical Hollywood cinema, where you're, you're the protagonist and you have an obstacle and you either overcome it or you don't. But that's what addicts us to sports, because it's like a real life version of the movies we all grew up wedded to. I also wonder what's going to happen with this young generation that isn't necessarily growing up with Hollywood being their dominant form of understanding the world, you know, because of all the self-generated content that's out there in media right now. I mean, I mean, I grew up thinking about people like Travis Bickle and Jake LaMotta, you know, Eddie Murphy in 48 hours, things like that. And my son's growing up on TikTok. So I think that's going to be a little bit different going forward. I don't know what the future is going to look like. If I, if I knew that would be my next book. Well, I think we're seeing, you know, people are watching what they want to watch. It's becoming more and more segmented. And if you want to watch videos about how, you know, vaccinations allow, you know, Elon Musk to track your, your, your comings and goings, you can find a video on YouTube that will, mm -hmm. you know, support mm -hmm. that in a, in a very compelling way. Yeah. Um, so I think we're getting, you know, just more and more segmented and, and getting into these little silos and certainly, you know, COVID has not helped that. Which gets back though, to one of the points we were talking about before, which is in this world of silos upon silos, Russian dolls of silos, you have the NFL, which just keeps getting bigger. You know, it's become the closest thing we have to a monoculture and the closest thing we have to some sort of unifying national language. And so when you have protests break out there, I mean, the effects of it are just seismic. And I'm not talking about Colin Kaepernick. I'm talking about like if you live in Beaumont, Texas, and the, the playing field is the closest thing that you have to like a, 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 a meeting house, a town square, a public forum, anything, you know, the closest thing you have to some sort of collective gathering is going to the stadium or the arena and then protest breaks out there. I mean, it just, it, it, it can shake a community to its core. Why do you think football has and continues to take on that role versus 
let's just say the NBA? I mean, the, the easy answer would be just to say because football, I mean, is America. I mean, football is war. Football is, you know, a sport that's not played internationally. It's really a sport of the United States and by the United States. And I think that's because it's always spoken to something very deep in the marrow of this country. And it's the idea of, I don't know how else to put it, but of uh, pioneer settler colonialism, like this idea that you either advance and you get more property or you're pushed backwards. And this constant battle of backwards and forwards. And it is something that I think appeals to people on a very elemental level, because as Americans, that's how many of us view our lives and our success or lack thereof. It's always like you're moving, you're like a shark. You're either moving forward or you die. And there's always someone in your way pushing you back. The real estate element, that's, is that why there's so many successful real estate developers that are NFL owners? I think there's a connection there, yes. Pretty fundamental one. And that's also why the NFL has such a love affair with the military, because it's that same idea of, of pushing, or, you know, pushing forward or being pushed back, of the quarterback being the field general, throwing bombs and bullets down the field. I mean, it's all, it's not just the language that's militarized. It's the very structure of success or failure in the sport. And certainly uh, the physicality of it, you know, I mean, I, I remember the the documentary that was on Frontline on PBS about the the brain injuries and, and they had a clip where they showed, you know, the intro graphic to, I think it was Monday Night Football with the two helmets colliding and exploding mm -hmm. upon each other. I think that that, the physicality, which no other sport has at least the, the four major sports speaks to the you know our 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 visceral you know warrior like mentality of the same the same part of our brain that enjoyed watching the gladiators compete in ancient rome right yeah and most of us wouldn't drag our young children to watch an mma fight for example and that's the other thing that the nfl has done so brilliantly from the uniform and helmet on the field to the concussion tent on the sidelines is hiding the effects of this violence from the consumer. So you're able to enjoy it the way you want to enjoy it, which is, you know, you can go, ooh, if someone goes down, if there's a stretcher, but they're quickly gone, quickly replaced. I mean, what's the number one slogan on every NFL team is next man up. So it's, uh, it's, the, it's the culture of the league. Dave, you know, we, we, we talked today about some of these athletes who are, are willing and, and able or some combination of the two to, you know, speak truth to power, so to speak. It's something you've done throughout your, your career and continue to do. It, it, it's a trademark of who you are. I'm sure there's been, you know, sacrifice in, in certain ways, whether it's, you know, the vile things you must get on social media sometimes or even career opportunities. What's given you the, the confidence to continue to, to push in that direction? I mean, the, the, I'll just say the first answer that came to my head, and that's, you know, my friendship with John Carlos. He was my first interview as a reporter. Met him in 2003 doing that and you know, just learning about his life and what he'd been through at that point the previous 35 years. And then to see over the last 18 years, him getting re-embraced by the very society that shunned him. And really like through John Carlos's eyes, living that life of how the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice is what's always sustained me, no doubt. Great, I think that's a great way to end it. Dave, really appreciate the work you do. Really enjoyed the Kaepernick effect. I hope people get a chance to to check it out. It's available September 14th. 
And hope to have you on again soon. Thank you. And I'll just throw out there a plug for people to see the way to, if you got HBO Max, do a search. It's, it's special. And if you were particularly intrigued by our conversations today about mental health, it's something everybody should see. Appreciate that. We'll have to find something to collaborate on. Oh, hey now. Sounds good to me.